This is Saving the Game, a Christian podcast about tabletop role-playing and collaborative storytelling. Recorded Thursday, June 12th of 2018, it's episode 135. In this episode, part two of our conversation with Alan, Ashley, and Kyle from the MinMax podcast about accountability in our in-game actions. So then I, I, I use, you know, role playing in some regard as a way to do that. And it's still it's still fun for me because that's how I have fun because I am a sick, twisted individual. Um, <laughs> and that, that's genuine. Well, I'm kind of right there with you. On <laughs> right. That. It's like, you know, if I don't actually get to get in there and examine anything, it seems like the um, the experience is somehow lacking for me. Yeah. And like even with the, the city on a hill thing, like so one of the things that I've been struggling with with Lambert and Grant's game is the fact that Lambert can be kind of vengeful, mm-hmm. right? I've, I've blogged about this extensively. I've brought it up on multiple podcasts. That is, for whatever it's worth, something that I have in my own personality, and I've gotten pretty good at not letting have free reign in my meat space life. It, it pretty much just pops out in gaming. Mm-hmm. But I still don't like that about myself. And so we're going on the, the City on a Hill thing, and I've made this Furbolg, which is this massive, towering, like gentle nature guardian race and i took the oath of the ancients paladin from the 5e player's handbook and if you go and read the tenets of that it's this very like kind merciful joyous kind of paladin oath it's it's not the you know the the hard stare serious honor you know (laughs) kind of a thing it's much more about kindness and you know just being this this very gentle and merciful force in the world and it's like all right I am going to lean so hard into this. I'm. We're just doing one night. I am just going to like grab the virtue of mercy with both hands and just hug it to my chest and hang on as tight as I can the whole time we're recording. And some cool moments came out of that. And it was actually, I, I used the word cleansing to describe the experience more than once because it was. It was like, I, I had this character that was very capable of just crushing people with this huge maul and was forced to early on, but it's like he didn't want to. And on some level, because he was so enormous, he didn't have to. He he was big enough and imposing enough where he was actually able to, on more than one occasion in just a two-hour session, tell people, go away, instead of fighting with me, and they did. <laughs> so, and you don't usually think of intimidation as a merciful thing, but it's like, if it comes down to that or crush you with this mall... <laughs> I'm going to scare you and make you go yeah. away. <laughs> Good talk. Sorry, did I take the conversation down a dead end? I've been known to do that No, before. honestly, no. I was just processing what you were saying. Yeah, I... Even even though like Peter, I I tend to have a pretty thin barrier between myself and my characters. As I've said, I, I find the analysis of some of those traits very fascinating and interesting and, and provides me with hours of entertainment, whether or not I'm speaking it aloud. A lot of times Alan will find me in the living room kind of zoning out and he's like, Are you all right? And I'm like, sorry, was just thinking about a thing. And he's like <laughs> I wondered because you didn't talk for like a whole half hour and you were staring at the same corner of the wall for a very long time. Um, so I have a, this just in, Ashley's a cat. Right, yeah, basically. I have a rich, she's been a cat the whole time. I have a, and we never knew. I have an animagus. Hashtag introvert brain. Yeah. Yeah, I have, I have a rich inner life. Um, but that's, that's why acting is fascinating to me as well because I, I, even if I don't mean to, I always end up having some sort of very deep connection with whatever character I'm playing. Um, one of the most fascinating characters I'd ever had a chance to be in the role of was Malvolio from Twelfth Night. I got to play a dude. And I, I went into the role thinking, okay, so this is the one role where I will have absolutely nothing nothing in common with the character and I don't know how familiar you guys are with the play but Malvolio is kind of a buffoon um, he ends up being in love with the, the lady that he is serving also he's a dude I am not uh, he's typically portrayed as being middle aged a little older than middle aged I am nearing that not there yet um, and so 
I, I really went into it thinking I will have absolutely nothing in, you know, nothing in common with him. And, and as rehearsals developed and I worked with this character, I ended up finding a lot of things that I had in common with him. And that, and that provided hours of self-reflection and entertainment for my part because I kept being surprised by what I would discover every time we'd rehearse. And it was never anything that was, I, I went and poured through the script and kind of analyzed ahead of time and then said, okay, I'm going to do this. It was always in the moment as I was in the company of the other cast members. Um, so those relationships were the, the things that were the catalyst for further depth and further reflection and, and, and further life brought to the character, which is, I think, why I'm pretty comfortable getting into roleplay characters that have kind of less than kosher motivation some of the time, because I know it's not just me in the story. So there's always an opportunity for something to change because of my relationships with the other characters in the RP. Um, and, and I don't take it too personally because it, to me, again, cat like Ashley is, is it's just a process of analysis and sort of I'm pouring into what these emotions are like and what reactions come out of certain situations. And, Oh, wasn't that interesting how that happened there? Um, Oh, I didn't expect that feeling to be evoked in me today. I'm going to have to think about that a little bit more. And then it's interesting. Then when I step out of that and go into the world, uh, if something happens, I can think back, Oh, Annika's really reactionary. And here's a moment where I would typically actually be very reactionary, but I'm not feeling that anymore. Cause I learned from that one RP session that we had that that was not the best course <laughs> of action. Granted, I'm not being held by gunpoint right now, but still it applies. Yeah. <laughs> well, and I think one of the things, and I've, this is one of my things that I talk about constantly, but one of the very first things, because Alan and Ashley were the ones who introduced me to D and D. Um, one of the very first things Alan told me was the true you, the person that you are comes out at the table. Um, and I've caught that, you know, with characters that I play all the time, I'll create characters and then I'll suddenly, you know, be playing them and realize, Oh wait, this is just it's it's kind of me doing what Ashley does intentionally, but I stumble upon it instead of, you know, I think I'm clever over here. Like, oh, I'm going to create this totally different character that has nothing to do with me. <laughs> and then five minutes into the game, I'm like, oh, no, it's just me just focusing on that personality trait instead of like generic me, I guess. But <laughs> I, I noticed this with um, Hidari, the, the wood elf druid that I play on our actual play d Demos a handful of, of episodes ago that there was this personality trait that was coming out in Hidari as he was interacting with, with Alan and Ashley's characters, um, Savona and KJ of just this kind of haughtiness, which is a lot of what I poured into the character in the first place. Um, but he just comes off as so almost disdainful towards his companions. And I was just like, Oh, I hate that. That's gross. I don't want to see that in myself. I don't want to see that in my character. Um, so it is. I think there, there's that revealing glimpse there too to say as you're exploring these things, it gives you an opportunity to draw those specific characteristics out and then say, yeah, no, I'm not into that and and find ways to push it aside and, and deal with it. But that was what was so interesting to me about our D&D demos when Hidari and Savona are, are, are at their worst selves and they're responding to one another like... Hidari will will get haughty and kind of isolationist and Savona has like the same level of pride and I think they just kind of like rebound off of one another but right. while you isolate I just get kind of like Peter's character revengeful or, or just full of wrath and rage yeah. so I'll like chase <laughs> Savona will chase Hidari and be like why are you doing that why are you leaving what's going on <laughs> and then KJ is talking to a book yep. right <laughs> that is our party <laughs> a talking book with a Spanish accent. <laughs> when that moment happened, it was it was so glorious. But one of the things I'm noticing is we're all kind of talking around a similar point, and I kind of want to point it out here. We're all talking around the ability that with the parties that we are playing with at the table, each of us is giving each other space that when these moments begin to happen they're free to happen and where the party members aren't stepping all over all over each other to be the center of attention and i've been in parties where uh and i've, I've run a game where a player kept making everything about him kept making everything about the character that he was playing and it was absolutely no no fun to play with him 
And we ended up having to shut that game down because it became that bad. Well, because he was also not admitting to it either. He didn't he couldn't see it. He had absolutely no concept of his own habits and he wouldn't hear it from you. And he wouldn't and he was not hearing the separation between character and player, no matter how many times we tried to talk about that separation between player knowledge, character knowledge, player actions, character actions. He wouldn't hear it. So we had to shut it down. And I think that's where to long circle us all the way back up to the top. When we're not respecting the boundaries and things that our players have set up, be that in session zero, be that in role playing games, be that in board games. We've got I'm sure we all have stories where we were kind of jerks in board games and kind of cross that line. Or at least I do. Maybe that's my Enneagram mm-hmm. 8 coming out. But Oh, no, no, I've, I've got my own whole set of stories on board games. <laughs> It's interesting. It seems almost like the the conclusion that we're kind of getting to here is this is a very subjective thing to the extent that we're accountable for what our, our characters do in game. It's more about the effect that that has on the other people at the table and on ourselves rather than some kind of objective morality where it's like, you know, having your character do this is always bad. Having your character do this is always good, minus some kind of a circumstance that would aggravate it or something. I I think that's interesting because it makes it very relational instead of something that's kind of codified, which, I mean, I shouldn't be surprised. That's kind of how a lot of things work, (laughs) but thoughts yeah no i just no you're not I, i i get where it would be a concern if you're consistently playing with groups where you don't you don't know the people very well that you're playing with and and admittedly that's that's not my habit i typically go and play tabletop rpgs with people that i know very well because that's where i have the most fun even if it's just sort of like a pickup game for for goofs you know my my cousin tyler's game i i know that i'm not gonna do a lot of self-reflection in that game because it's mostly about him learning how to dm and him having fun so i delight in his excitement when something plays out well in the story he's trying to craft i delight when i have been able to make him laugh you know those are my primary goals is he having fun is he laughing does he feel empowered to try new things cool that's my main goal not going to do a lot of any sort of like deep soul work here. <laughs> but I do have fun in other games, you know, playing with Alan as a DM or Kyle as a DM or Francelia, some of our other friends that we've had on our podcast, Dennis, Mac. And there I feel comfortable to be, you know, m- much more reflective, much more emotional, um, even if it's just in an acting sense of I'm going to really get into the RP right now. I trust that I can do that. And if I've overstepped boundaries, I know that they'll tell me and I'll feel comfortable debriefing with them. Vice versa. If I feel uncomfortable with something, I can call timeout and not feel ashamed for it. And I've never used the card. I think because we've never played in games where we couldn't just suddenly put our hands up and say, Hey, I'm feeling uncomfortable right now. I don't know what's going on. I don't know why. We haven't had a tool, needed a tool for that. But I could see if you're playing with people that you're still getting to know or haven't known before, that those tools would be necessary. I'm glad to hear that they exist. Yeah. And I I think this is one of the reasons why I am such a big fan of gaming with people that I'm close to. Like I can, I can have fun going in as a, a stranger basically. And Jenny and I had fun doing city on a hill, but it's like, it doesn't get into the same like deep emotional stuff that I get into with Grant and Chrissy and our other anonymous player. Um, yeah. And even some of what I get into running the game that uh, Jenny is in with that same other group of people where it's like, hey, you know, this is maybe not the simplest or most surface level stuff that we're always doing. I mean, sometimes it is, you know, we we tell jokes. Jenny tries to put teeth back in a dead manticore. <laughs> Um, (laughs) we get pranked by a fairy dragon in grant's game i mean it's just like you know it's there's definitely that room for fun but if you're going to get into something like heavy yeah you want your close friends and you know that you already know you can trust sitting around the rest of the table yeah like Mm -hmm. i would not play hala in most other campaigns or tables. Yeah. My character is about as close to an evil character as you would probably let anyone get in your game, which yeah. is not super evil in fairness, but yeah, she's not nice. No, <laughs> no, not particularly. She's kind of flippant and condescending and apathetic towards other people's circumstances. Yeah. Extremely proud. 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Eh, she's balanced out by the rest of the party, though. <laughs> yeah. I think the the one exception for me in terms of, like, gaming with strangers is some of the games that I've been in at Fear the Con. Mm. And in some ways, I, I get way more into characters at conventions than I do at regular games. I, I still don't mm-hmm. know why that is. Huh. I am... I... Maybe someday I'll figure it out. Maybe this Fear of the Con, I'll figure it out. It's coming up in a week. Who knows? I know why but, it is for me. Yeah? It's because it's a throwaway. I do not have to leave anything for the next session. That's so yeah. interesting to me. I can pour it all out right then. There's also the energy of this is a con. You know, we're all gaming like as hard as we can. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the excitement kind of tears down some of those mental and emotional barriers. Fear of the Con, for me, you know, the beer. <laughs> tears down some of those because at least when I was going free beer <laughs> and the excitement of being there and all, you know knowing that these are good people a lot of these f- folks mm-hmm. I'd been talking to for years on the the fear of the boot forums it's great so mm-hmm. when you sit down at a table with these folks you don't leave anything you dump it all out in three to four hours as hard as you can because you don't have to think ahead for the next session you, you don't know that there's going to be a next session all of your role playing has to happen right now yeah. I'll also say the the GMs have been generally pretty good about labeling which games are going to be serious so mm-hmm. that you have literal months to prepare emotionally in advance for that. Like I know that um uh Dogs in the Vineyard gets played there most every year and it can get pretty uh pretty something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and so you you do have the time to pr- prepare for that. So I, I I think that at least the, the throwaway thing might be part of it. I know the beer is not part of it for me, no. um, but uh, yeah, it, it it might it might be that it might be that. I know that I've experienced a lot more bleed in con games than I have in regular sessions. Oh, I've experienced full on tilt in con games, so I'm right there with you. Yeah, um, exhaustion I, I, I think th- plays into it too. Like <laughs> yeah. you well, know, exhaustion and past events in that particular thing, but. Uh, the other thing that um, I think is interesting that's kind of unique to Fear the Con is those are strangers, but they're not. They're they're booters, yeah. you know, and there's a certain culture to that community that the community is very aware of and takes active pride in. That means that if something happens and somebody gets really upset at a table, it's not like you're just sitting there at like Pathfinder Society night at the FLGS and somebody might rub salt in the wound just to, you know, make you cry more because they think that's hilarious or something, you know, that the game is going to stop. People are going to be like, are you OK? Like, seriously, yeah. are you the player? OK. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a very similar vibe as well at Save Against Fear. And I think that's partially because of what Save Against Fear is all about. Um, You can kind of hear it in the name of the convention. So there is that aspect to the the short-term game. But um, we've been talking about short-term games for a fair while. But I I think short-term games are so interesting because I have been a part of so few of them. So that idea of of having a throwaway game is, is novel to me. It doesn't make any sense to me because every game that I'm a part of this isn't me both this is me like realizing a habit I have there's no such thing as a throwaway game like you get 100% unfiltered Ashley Mowers in every game for better or for worse because it just it for for whatever reason matters so much so even when I've been in like little dinky skits here and there for you know some sort of festival or something that is entirely me fully in that character invested even if i'm playing like a once i had to play okay i'm short short story time once i had to play sheer khan in a children's theater <laughs> show of jungle book and it was i mean it was very low budget my costume made me look like tony the tiger but <laughs> man you got the best dang sheer khan <laughs> that Kiwani County had to offer <laughs> because I, I just I I have the hardest time pulling back when I'm finally in it because it's those moments are so rare and especially when you're trying to schedule with everybody to get a game going which is like okay this is the night boys this is the night it's happening <laughs> we're finally playing you're getting all of it all or nothing all right we're gonna go in there we're gonna play a good game give them a hundred percent 
Like, that's just my mentality every time I go in. You're a movie football coach. <laughs> I have to learn how to play that first. <laughs> I think the last Super Bowl game or Super Bowl party we went to, I was just like, you go, horses. She did. Good job. <laughs> Who's playing? I'm wearing a Favre jersey. I don't know what team he's on anymore, but hey, nachos. Yeah. Yay, it was ball. It was yeah. so painful having been in a previous life headed towards sports journalism and sports broadcasting <laughs> and calling football my entire high school career and thinking that's where I was headed professionally. Yeah, it, it's painful. <laughs> I am the bane of Alan's existence. I think if I think if you add I, I'm not going to speak for Kyle, but if you add Ashley based on what she just said and then Grant, Jenny and I all of our sports knowledge up, we might have the same amount as a pair of Allen socks. You're speaking for yourself here because I played a ton of youth sports and was a sports fan for a long time. Uh, okay, fair enough. Hockey and uh, rugby. Those I'm are mine. so jealous that you got to play rugby. Oh, I yeah, that's so right. wanted you were the, to play the, rugby. The tiny wrecking machine. I remember talking I about that in the wrecking the machine. <laughs> for the record, Peter, you can totally speak for me. It's fine. No harm done in that in okay. that category. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> <laughs> but hearkening back a little bit to to where we started with this, um, I, I'm in the same boat as Ashley, I think, because I'm thinking about my game, which I think is, I mean, for me, it's like the only regular D&D game I'm a part of right now. And it becomes like this scheduling fiasco just between four of us of like, we'll be on for like a week, maybe two if we're lucky. And then the next thing I know, like I'm thinking about the last time we played and it's been what guys, like a month and a half again already. Yeah, I yeah, think it's it been has six been. Weeks. It just, you know, like the struggle yeah. is real. And so, so the, the, the games exist so few and far between that it's like, man, I just, I gotta get as much enjoyment out of this one session as I can because there might not be another one for a long time mm -hmm. yeah I know for me when it comes to like one-off sessions like this is where my gamist comes out and I go into full min-maxer mode and I I get the most greedy when I do kind of one-off games because all I want to do is do the best of anyone at the table and I want to be the very best <laughs> no one ever was no one ever was <laughs> yep. I, it, it comes out at the table though for like one-off games so I care so little about the character interactions because I'm not going to be playing this character all that much so if he makes a total jerk out of himself well I mean okay but I'm just there to sit down and roll dice and have fun and do as much damage and DPS as possible but I, I don't know yeah I always think long form games and I always think like the beauty of doing a, a actual play for the podcast is several times a year we get to schedule at a time where we're already recording an episode anyway which means we get to sit down <laughs> and play Dungeons and Dragons <laughs> with set characters and a, and a rotating yeah. roulette of DMs yeah well and I think that's the closest that I, I ever get to a like a sort of quote-unquote throwaway like short-term game is because we have a new dm every time so i'm having to start from square one again because we're getting used to a different dm style and that was the whole intent the whole time was to you know learn about different dming styles and see how people you know lead their table but so that's that's something that i'm trying to push into a little bit more and even learn from alan's gamist perspective because i i usually lead with what's the narrative okay i'll base my stats on that now i'm actually trying to think about well what would be helpful novel idea what would be helpful to my party <laughs> uh, very relatable very relatable um we talk a lot about practicing good at the table at least on saving the game using games as kind of a, a tool for moral practice moral fortification um going back again to our episode with uh sarah lynn bowman and how kind of Tolkien thought about stories is like this this moral rearmament kind of a thing. You know, this is this is a way to practice being a better person than I am right now. And I know that a lot of the time as I'm sitting there role playing, I've got this this thing in the back of my head where it's like, what kind of message am I sending right now? How does what you know this character is going to do reflect on me, the person sitting in this chair? It kind of to to flip that on its head, does that naturally imply that practicing bad is equally dangerous and grant kind of has jokingly in here's grant doom because um, he likes to play a little bit darker characters you know what are your all thoughts on that 
I think this is, again, where we get back into sort of separation from the character. Mm -hmm. I think it's okay to explore things that you may never go through. Like, I I don't think I'm ever going to end up in a place where I do something that is legitimately and completely an act of supreme evil. I don't think I will ever experience that in my life. And I don't think it's inherently bad to want to know what it would be like to do that. I also don't think I'm going to ever be able to, you know, do an act so good it would make me a saint. Mm -hmm. I don't think I'm ever going to be able to do that. So I, I don't think it's bad or inherently wrong to want to experience something outside of your everyday. It really just is about... How separate are you from your character? Can you distinguish between your actions and your character's actions? Yeah, I think I would tend to agree with that. I think for me, you know, what happens in game can be a little bit more loose. I think I think the practicing good piece needs to happen out of character. I, I mean, I think it's absolutely yeah. crucial for how we're engaging with other people at the, the table, whether they're close personal friends or they're complete strangers. I think, you know, we are representatives of Christ in how we personally act, I think more so than how we're acting within that in-character environment, especially if we're creating a very clear cut for people to recognize, like, this is me in game, but this is me, you know, out of that character. I'm I'm playing this character. I'm being very clear right now that I, I'm allowing this character to go in a different direction, but that's not who I am. And I think that shows in the way that we interact with other people at the table. I also think if you don't allow for some level of redemption for a character, I, I'm probably never going to be as rock bottom as my character in Peter's game is. I don't think I'm ever going to hit that level of of just nowhere to go-ness. And I, I would love to experience, to whatever degree, some level of lifting up that I don't get to have on, it, that I probably won't get to have in my life. So, yeah, you're doing bad now doesn't mean you're going to be doing bad forever in in the game. Yeah. It's telling if you're in a game with somebody who is playing a character that leans towards evil and then comes out of game and is like, I liked the taste of that. I want to see more of that. But like in real life. There's there's more to that than them having played a game. You know, it doesn't it doesn't start with the game. There's something else there. The same with actors. Yeah. You know, mm. method acting isn't what created the problem. It just opened up for that actor to to come into contact with something that was already present within them and and they fell into it without any sort of check involved. So I, I think really it's it's not that you are creating a monster, you're just unmasking one potentially yeah i think that's the possibility but again i i think it's also i I come from the perspective that it's not just you know savona isn't just my character savona's mine but also what's added to her is whatever that dm that we have on the show brings to the table they're 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 providing you with opportunities to be able to create something further And, and savona doesn't exist without there being a game present so whatever is being done it's it's a co-creation stand standpoint that's where i'm coming from i guess so when i leave a game i don't ever come away with everything was entirely my fault or everything was entirely my good decision good or bad decision it was facilitated by the game itself so I, I don't come away with, you know, particularly whole ownership of anything that happened. You know, if, if I if I actually do something as a player that was <laughs> reprehensible, that's mine. I got to own that. Uh, but as a, as a character, it's more of a co-creation thing, at least from my perspective. Yeah, that is a good point. It's it's a very collaborative form mm-hmm. of media. It's not like if you're sitting here writing something as an author you're really like 100% accountable for everything in that book because it all came out of your brain. You're not really reacting to anything. You're not playing off of anything else. You're not trying to set anybody else up. You're just Mm -hmm. writing. At a game table, (laughs) everybody's writing and you're all sharing the same page. Right, exactly. And so, you know, you're bouncing things off of one another and things you know may misfire. You you might have had a bad instinct within a situation. You know, people respond to the, the stress 
of the improv differently. And I'm not going to fault anybody for just having a, a misstep when you know, improv isn't their forte or they have a, a misstep as far as their instincts are concerned, because we're all kind of trying to to learn from that and, and kind of collaboratively create something better than what we have outside. And I think that's going to shape us in different ways as well. And I think that's why it's important to kind of have a group that you feel comfortable doing that with. So how much value is there actually to be had in exploring our darker impulses at the table? I think if you can find a way to do it safely, I think there's value there. I think the main issue for me is feedback. Does the rest of the table tacitly approve of that behavior? Or do you get pushback from the GM, from other players? Do you explore, does this actually work? Is this good for the character and thus for you? The big problem with a lot of gaming groups that I think turn toxic, well, one of several problems with those kinds of groups, is those gaming groups care a great deal about procedural success and don't really care about tactics necessarily. Mm -hmm. And as such... That sort of, you know, whatever I do to succeed uh, mentality starts to take hold and you start getting into sort of reveling in that cruelty or uh, success at whatever cost. Whereas, Peter, you remember we tried a, a Warhammer 40k game, Rogue Trader. Yeah. And Rogue Trader is perhaps the most hopeful of all the 40k RPGs out there, which is not saying a great deal because it's 40k. <laughs> uh, but it is sort of exploring the conflict between this horribly oppressive 40k future Nazi Imperium and the necessity of having people who are free to interact with aliens on a somewhat friendly basis and to go explore and be independent. And even that we couldn't really handle because the whole setting is just depressing and awful. Yeah, I, I basically kind of shut down and had my um, Adeptus Mechanicus obsess over toasters as a comic release valve i just <laughs> i basically rejected the premise i i couldn't handle it yeah you know it's like i can't live in this world i don't want to live in this world get me out of this world and there are people <laughs> who think that's great and that kind of feedback tends i think to encourage that sort of behavior and that's where a lot of this bleed comes from whereas there's a lot that i have planned for hala for example in your DD game and just to be clear this is not like Warhammer 40k bad, D&D &D necessarily good, right? I'm just saying, right. using this as an example, there's a lot that I have planned for Hala that is not going to work out well for her. <laughs> and I know that going in, but also I fully expect that the other characters are going to go, I'm sorry, what? Sweetie, listen, <laughs> that's not how we do things. And there's a lot that you as a GM are going to do where you'll go, you tr okay, you're doing that? Well, here are the natural consequences. And of course, me as a player, I'm like, great, let me drive Hala gleefully into those. <laughs> <laughs> um, but those consequences are important, right? You actually ran into some of that already. You yeah. uh, you suggested at the end of the last session that your party just walk away and everybody else just kind of looked at you aghast. It was like, no, that's yeah. not how we handle things. And this is one of the reasons I like playing a you know neutral character which again is about as close to evil as you're gonna let us get in this game where i was like huh these people need help this seems like a lot of work and danger what if we just left guys which <laughs> is not exactly heroic but it's the kind of thing that like i want that to be a character trait for this character if if for no other reason then that's how you open up room for redemption stories and that sort of thing mm -hmm. yeah it also makes a good dramatic foil for the other three characters that are varying flavors of pretty darn heroic so mm -hmm. that's also useful like lambert is very much a foil for garmin aster sure. in your game absolutely it's like he's trying really hard to do everything the right way and they're like you know we could just stab somebody right solve this problem a lot faster but but <laughs> here's the thing if i you know, go oh hey holla here's some consequences i'm gonna drive you straight into those and you go well i mean you rolled for successes and yeah it, it all works out well now what what feedback are we getting from the yeah. game. And if that becomes habitual, if that's the fantasy world I live in, my idealized world that I live in every week, what lessons do I start taking away from that? 
Yeah, I, I, that almost starts to become Grand Theft Auto as D&D, right? I mean, it's, you know, you're just like, whoa, no consequences. I can be a total psychopath. And it's like, that's not useful in any way, shape or form. Sure. Right. And that's where if I, again, if I noticed a friend <laughs> that was consistently going back to those narratives over and over and over again, I like being devious. I like playing the evil character. I like to be maniacal. I like to be the medieval fantasy version of the Joker. Then then I would have some questions. I'd be like, <laughs> why is that the narrative that's compelling to you? I'm, I'm compelled by a lot of different narratives, but for various reasons. But I, I typically don't keep going back to a narrative that you know, would be inspired by malice and, and consistent, terrifying amounts of torture and blood, bloodshed. There might be a time and a place for that within a specific type of campaign if you needed a foil or if you needed a villain. But yeah, I, th- I think there would be some some questions necessary if, if someone were truly compelled by those narratives over and over and over again. So <laughs> kind of one final question here. What are the best ways to avoid the twin pitfalls of flippant apathy, which I think we've probably covered pretty well in the episode already, and harsh legalism, which I've been kind of transparent about being something that I personally struggle with in this aspect with regards to this sort of material. What are your thoughts on that? How do we kind of like check and, you know, say, well, you know, this this might be darker, but that doesn't necessarily mean there's nothing useful mm-hmm. here for me as a person or a Christian or role player or no, this is gratuitous and this should stop. Right. Well, I think gratuity might be a good starting point. It's okay mm-hmm. to explore some of these dark themes, dark actions, that sort of thing, and especially if we're talking about consequences later. But reveling in the gratuitous nature of some of those is probably not healthy at the table. Getting back maybe to lines and veils, there are things you can do to veil out your own character's actions. You can just say, mm-hmm. and we fade to black as such and such starts or uh, and we come back and my character has done such and such. OK, great. You don't have to revel in it, but we can still say my character did this and that has dramatic or procedural consequences for the rest of the plot going forward. Mm-hmm. Experiencing yeah. the consequences without necessarily going into all the gory details. Yeah. Take a, a more Hitchcock like approach. That's an interesting approach. You you experience the consequences, but not the the evil thrill of whatever nasty thing it is that the character is doing. Right. And it does have the virtue of letting everyone else sort of imagine the details in their own head and go, ooh. That's real bad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I kind of take an opposite approach on that. One of the things that, at least as a, at least as a DM, that I've actually... To force my players to really come to reconcile some of the actions that they've done, when they choose to do something that is immoral, I really don't shy away from using the details because I want them to recognize and have a horrible mental picture of some of the things that actually happened. So in one of the old games that I ran, there was this instance where they ran into some bandits and they managed to capture one alive. And it was a and it was a younger teenager. And they brought them, they captured him, they brought him back to the encampment and turned him into the constable, basically. And they knew the punishment was going to be hanging. And I made it very explicitly clear. I was like, this kid is like 14 or 15. It's clear he was kind of enculturated into this. He was saying things along the lines of, I I just needed to get a little bit of extra money to bring food home to my family, things like that. And they let him swing. And so I described it badly. And everyone had went from being a, yeah, we did the thing to, oh, I'm uncomfortable with the decision that I made. And I watched it happen at the table, watched the players have that moment of going from, yes, we did it. And yes, we did it. And I don't feel good about it. But I would say that in particular, that table needed that wake up call because they were used to just kind of going through a, you know, loot the kick open the door loot the room sort of process with their consequences for their actions right and you had made it clear that that's not the type of game you wanted to run and they still said yes to playing yeah and for my i know personally as a player for for my own character peripatea needed that kind of wake-up call just for her character arc in general so it was very helpful for shaping her character because she was lawful good but very hard-lined on the lawful part because she was trying to learn how to be a good cleric So to her, she thought the form of good that 
is what's necessary is to be as lawful as possible. So in this case, yes, this is a teenager, but he broke the law and the law is the law. And that's how I be good. So that was a wake up call for her as a character to recognize, oh, being good doesn't always mean following the letter of the law and being legalistic. Yeah. And so, you know, that was necessary. It didn't really affect me as a player because obviously there wasn't an actual teenager being hung in front of me. You were describing something. I could engage with that as a character and react in that way. But once the game was done, it was just an interesting conversation because the rest of the players weren't used to someone calling them out on their BS. Yeah. See, I almost think that that's exactly what Grant was talking about, though. It yeah, is. That the, is the absolutely like the consequences. They they had to watch this very unpleasant thing that they were at fault for happen and process that without it just being all about, hey, look at this, you know, thing that we were able to sure, do. I guess I, I just guess I read the explanation just a little bit differently. Well, I, th- eh, I think it's, it's yeah. important also to know where the whole table is at as a group. There are some games that Alan and I have been a part of where they're just not going to be up for having those sort of moral conversations as much as we would want to. Um, so having those graphic details, they just kind of be like, well, that happened. And they'd, they'd move on with absolutely no sort of further thought available. Or they'd just yep. be like, why are you being weird? So, so then, you know, the part that we try to play in those conversations then is to even just ask general questions to try to get conversation going in the first place. And these are typically gaming groups that we've been a part of where they're not Christian. So in, in that case, it's been interesting having some of those moral quandaries and having them depicted and, and then being like, hey, so if this were to happen in real life, what would your reaction be? Because your player character reaction was kind of alarming to me. And I want to make sure I'm not sharing this space with a psychopath. And then there's some laughter. And then we talk about it. And then it is actually. But you kind of have to go at it in a different angle than just a. So you're terrifying and I have some real concerns. Um, if you know, if you play it off as a joke, then then you can kind of it's almost like going in through the back door of someone's, you know, moral sort of ethical boundaries where they, they might be less comfortable to have those conversations. But if you treat it as a joke, you can kind of get there in a different way. So it's mm-hmm. it's just interesting when you're playing with different sort of moral sensitivity levels. Especially when we know the parties that we're playing with, too. One of the things that I really like to lean into, and Kyle uh, Kyle and Ashley, I think, both agree with me on this. When you walk through the darkness and you feel how dark it can be, when you actually come out and see the light, the light is so much brighter. Yeah. And yeah. so when, especially um, to... to quote Kyle and, and talk about the hero's journey when the heroes walk through horrible things and they see they see dark stuff and frankly we don't there's not a lot of mechanics in role-playing games to deal with PTSD and sanity and things like that because all the things that people go through in the course of the battles that we have as our RPG characters are extremely traumatic and it's yeah. not things we ever really talk about but if we can as players be comfortable with each other enough to go if we actually let ourselves experience some of the darkness play a darker themed game and when we go from the darker parts and we actually go up to some of the heroic highs, when you hit that high, it feels so good and you feel like you've actually achieved and accomplished something at the table. And I think that's why letting ourselves go to dark places and sometimes playing problematic characters and playing troublesome characters, I think is really important because even as that character, if you are playing something like an evil character and you see someone do something heroically good and it changes your perspective a little bit and it could cause an alignment shift or it could cause something that could cause that character to rethink some actions, those moments are just storytelling gold. See, two years of Lambert and Esther. (laughs) Why did you shoot that arrow into the forest? What else would you have me do? Oh, now you're confronting me with my own privilege. That's not good. Yeah. Well, and I think what what that kind of gets to is, again, that idea of a, a redemption story where exploring some of that darkness leaves room for people to come through it changed. But either you have to kind of go in setting that up or you have to be open to that idea. And you're right that there are groups for whom this is just not on the table. And I think in short bursts, that's okay. It can be cathartic to just act some of that out and get it done with. We were talking about con games. At the first Fear of the Con I went to, my first day was three games. 
The first one was a, a paranoia game run with somebody using a chat bot as friend computer, which was great. <laughs> the second one was Oh come on, you got you gotta you gotta dump this out a little bit more. Well that one's actually guy- no, no no hold on. That one's not actually relevant. Okay. All right. Have you met us? <laughs> Everything is relevant. Yeah. <laughs> All right, fine. It was let's just say that the seeds for this particular chat bot were GLaDOS from the original oh, yes. Yes. and the TimeCube website. <laughs> <laughs> and the guy who programmed it is like a doctorate level oh. software engineer. He's like an AI engineer. He is so. a specialist in artificial intelligence. Yes. Oh my gosh, what a resource. <laughs> Uh, it was a very ridiculous paranoia game in which we finally managed after three hours to change a light bulb. <laughs> How many clones died in the process, Grant? All of them. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Including one of our buddies, Evan. Uh, he went through a second six pack of clones because the GM was like, all right, you ran out. Here's the last character sheet I had prepared. And we killed all of those. Two. <laughs> That's oh incredible. <laughs> but the second game which, by the way, I played with a bunch of born-again Christians, was group anger management therapy for Soul Calibur of characters. Hmm. And that was this rollicking, cathartic, let's just all be awful people kind mm-hmm. of game. And it was incredible amount of fun. I played Voldo. I literally hissed for three hours. <laughs> <laughs> I just made hissing noises, facial expressions, and hand motions. And that's everything I did at the, at the table. And it was great. But also... We had a bunch of terrible characters at the table, all literally in court-ordered anger management therapy, and it did not go well for anyone. The third game was a Walking Dead-style dread game. Oh, awesome. Where my character finally, in the midst of this terrible zombie apocalypse, admitted that this child he'd had out of wedlock was really his and agreed that even in this, this terrible world, it was time for him to be a father. Huh. You can jump from game to game and group to group. And, that you know, I almost wonder if if I hadn't gotten all of that out in that that second session, if I would would have been willing to go to that degree in that third game, because I created that part of the character. The great thing about Dread is not the Jenga mechanic. Honestly, the best part is the fact that character creation is done with 10 leading questions like, why do you hate your Mm -hmm. job? Mm. That's the Mm. best part of Dread, because the GM sets out a very rough template But you fill in so much and hand it back and the GM goes, oh, you've made the character, this very complicated character. Now I get to work that in. The reason he was not willing to come back to this Midwestern town where everything went wrong was because he was pretty sure he'd had a kid out of wedlock in high school right before he went to college. And he didn't want to deal with that. And now that everything has almost literally gone to it was time for him to step up. And for you playing that character, Grant, I'm just curious, when you were once out of that game, how did you feel after that experience? Because you are a father. Did that reflect at all and how you you think about fatherhood at all? Did, Did you feel responsible for any of the decisions personally? You know, I'm sure it was on my mind because my wife and I went when she was about six months pregnant with our okay. first kid. So hadn't met our kid yet, but, you know, <laughs> definitely on the way. I, you know, I'm sure it was on the, on my mind, but at the same time, I also, to a certain degree, maybe I chickened out because that was sort of the emotional climax, which meant like it came at the end and that's when we dealt with it and I didn't have to deal with it any, any more after Mm. that, if that makes sense. It does. But it was something that I was willing to kind of step up and be like, Hey, this is a emotional vulnerability and a problem for this character. And so that was fine. Mm -hmm. The thing about A gaming table is, in almost all cases, you're sharing it with other players who also need the spotlight time. And in a game like Dread, where you're trying to pack maximum drama in a three-hour or four-hour slot, it's not all about you. You have to give room to other people to also have those dramatic moments. So, you know, I got to explore this, and that's great, but it wasn't the only thing that was explored at that Mm. table. Of course, but it's your story right now that we're hearing. That's why I was curious. And with that, I think we have a (laughs) two-parter. Yeah. Hooray! Anybody have any other parting thoughts about this kind of overall topic or anything before we wrap this one up? Yeah, I guess I just Grant's story just makes me think of our emotional availability within games and, and Jenny's comments, too, about how she has, you know, what would you say? Three brick, three yeah. brick walls yeah, between yeah, exactly. me and my character. So, yeah. <laughs> so where emotional availability comes into both character creation and role playing with other characters and what that says about where we're at as far as our willingness 
to discuss some of the issues that we were even talking about today, evil, regret, anything icky in general. Um, And, and, you know, I think some of us would say, well, I'm being healthy. I'm putting up barriers because it's necessary for me to make sure that I keep things at arm's length. Also, it's just a game. And then there are some people who go overboard and they're like, everything is my therapy. You know, it's like the yeah. <laughs> like the world is a stage. The world is is a fainting couch in my the therapist's office. Right. Exactly. Um, so I'm wondering, <laughs> you know, in that regard, that boundary is very interesting to me. When is it necessary for us to push a little, you know, go a little deeper, dig a little deeper, push a little harder into making ourselves uncomfortable and being more emotionally available? And then for those of us who really need to rein it in um, and recognize, as Grant said, you know, there are other players at the table. It's their story, too. They need to be showcased a little bit. Um, and And I almost find that that's something players specifically need to be a little more aware of not necessarily the violence though again if you notice that someone is being gratuitous and weirdly so you need to call it when you see it but for me something that i have to push into more is is being less emotionally available in certain games i think alan we've talked about it before like you're a gamist that's your habit so being more emotionally available in games and we got that in our last dn demo you had to be more emotionally available because you know, jeff romo god bless him really caught you off guard <laughs> yeah jeff kind of blew my mind on that and yeah it's really important to to recognize when you need to be more available and when you need to play into some of your weaker abilities as a player and as a person all right yeah and i think on that note we can call this an episode um yep thank you all so much for coming on absolutely spending all this time with us. our pleasure including the time to iron stuff out beforehand and yeah I'm so glad we actually got the right. scheduling down. We actually yeah. got the scheduling you, down. You can't see me, but I'm dabbing right now. Yeah. My- <laughs> Naturally, I just had to be a, a day when I was going to work a 12-hour day, and I'm, I'm a little waiting for dinner. So, yeah. Oh, I'm, no. I'm, yeah. <laughs> oh, oh, no. Uh, well, um... Let's let Kyle and Grant go make themselves comfortable here. <laughs> yeah. Well, real quick, though, uh, if you can, because if we do split this into a two-parter, we'll need this. Or if people have forgotten at the end of this incredibly long episode, <laughs> where can folks find you on the Internet? Uh, you can find us at uh, minmaxpod at gmail.com. Uh, minmaxpod.com is our website. Minmaxpod on all the social networks except Reddit, where we are at Minmax Podcast. Well, Kyle, Ashley... Alan, thank you so much for joining us. We really do appreciate you coming on and sticking with us this long. Yeah, Kyle, thanks for bet. skipping dinner, yep. or at least putting it thank off. Thank you, guys. It was yeah. a lot of fun. It really was. <laughs> well, from all of us here at Saving the Game and the MinMax podcast, have a good one. Take it easy. We'll catch you next time. Adios. See ya. Bye. See you later, folks. This has been a production of Saving the Game. All episodes are produced and published under a Creative Commons 4.0 attribution, share-alike license, Our logo is by Ruben Smith Zimple of 3d6design.com. Our music is The Promised Place Beyond the Clouds by James Opie. You can find more of his music at nihilor.com. To hear our past episodes, to find syndication and license details, to connect with our fantastic listener community, or to contact us or support our show through Patreon, visit our website at stgcast.org or savingthegamepodcast.org. God bless, do good, and happy gaming.